When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello world, this is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punatambekar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research Manager at CARC. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues. Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Global Media and Communication. I'm your host for today. My name is Mariela Morales, and I'm a graduate fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. Today, our guest is Larissa Kingston Mann. Uh, Dr. Mann is the author of Root Citizenship, Jamaican Popular Music, Copyright, and the Reverberations of Colonial Power. It was published earlier this year, 2022, by the University of North Carolina Press, Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Min. Thank you so much for having me. And would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, so I'm currently an assistant professor of media studies and production at Temple University. Uh, I've been there for about six years. Uh, I have a PhD in jurisprudence and social policy from mm-hmm. UC Berkeley Law School and a master's in economic history from the London School of Economics. Uh, and a million years ago, I did my bachelor's in history at Oberlin College, uh, and I'm the daughter of two working class academics. My mother was a professor at UMass Boston. Mm-hmm. My father taught at Bunker Hill Community College, and uh, I've also been a practicing and touring DJ for about 27 years. Uh, Quite the resume. All of those things sort of feed into the book. So. Yes, um, and uh, very interdisciplinary. And mm-hmm. you ended up, after all of that trajectory, being a comm scholar. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, um, in terms of like this book, your genealogy, how do you arrive to the subject of the book? Uh, what led you to it, how you ended up like turning it into a com book. If we, well, it is more than a com book and I mm-hmm. feel that different, I feel that different audiences can um, use it. Definitely law scholars can uh, be very beneficial mm-hmm. in terms of like copyright and trying to understand it, uh, what things assumes uh, and what type of worlds understands as given. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you can talk a little bit more about how do you arrive to your topic and why do you, how do you end up writing the book? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, Um, The genealogy is quite funny. It's quite literal in a way because uh, my mother was a historian of enclosure movements and Mm -hmm. peasant land rights uh, and privatization of common lands. And my father was an ethnomusicologist. And there's a way to look at this book as being about the enclosure of music. So in a way, it completely uh, embodies 
things that I grew up hearing about, uh, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking of that at the time, uh, which is another kind of amazing thing about doing research over long periods of time. And they, uh, the research was also in Jamaica? No, my mother wrote about a peasant uh, revolution in, in Russia in the pre-Soviet mm -hmm. era, but a lot about um, people owning land in common mm -hmm. and people redrawing the rules of property from above, supposedly in the interests of economics, mm -hmm. but in fact in the interest of consolidating power and taking it away from... Uh, uh, everyday people. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it was. A, I actually draw a lot on that, um, which is even before I was a, a scholar. Like yeah. the things we talked about at the dinner table, because that's the kind of things we talked about. <laughs> that was when you're the kid of scholars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, but that, that, those interests were always sort of in in me, or mm -hmm. for many, many years. And then, basically. Uh, After I finished my undergrad, I was doing, I was getting involved in music and not sure what I should do left next. And I thought maybe I would try doing a master's degree to see if I was interested in this whole grad, graduate school experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was way back now in 1999. Uh, and I had to think of a research topic for my economic history degree. So I mm -hmm. did economic history at... Um, the London School of Economics. Um, and I had been thinking about enclosure movements in land, and then I read this really great um, article called The Second Enclosure Movement, mm. uh, which was by Jamie Love, I believe. And it was basically about the consolidation of intellectual property law in the late 90s under the IMF and World Bank mm. sort of Washington consensus. Uh, and he draws a really explicit parallel to these enclosure movements, again, that I actually knew a lot about from like, my family. And I was yeah. like, this is fascinating. And I already had started to DJ at that time, and I was familiar with Jamaican music, and I was like, I wonder if Jamaica would be an interesting example of any of this. And I went to look, and it was very interesting because even though the World Bank and the International Monetary mm -hmm. Fund were going around to every developing nation mm -hmm. and saying you should all redraw your copyright laws to look exactly the same and yeah. to look like this. Um, and they made this really, f to my mind, very funny, coming from a his being a historian and trained yeah. by historians or raised by historians, this idea that if you don't have this particular copyright system, your industry will not develop which is also totally ahistorical because no current industry had that when they were developing. <laughs> so, yeah, precisely. You know, classic sort of Washington consensus thing. And so they made this argument also in Jamaica. They said, you know, as the IMF was busy destroying the Jamaican economy, there's a great film called Life and Debt, which talks about that more generally. Um, uh, one of the things they also said was you need to rewrite your copyright law, otherwise your industry won't develop. And it's also a very weird thing to say to Jamaica in the 90s because Jamaica in the 90s had already created a global popular music, yeah. uh, you know, tidal wave of creativity that had been globally influential and was massively productive and, you know, it's a tiny island. So so I was already like, all right, there's something here that's happening that isn't what this model says yeah, is they happening. They definitely didn't need any development of their music industry. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there were things they needed, but there were those are also things that pretty much any Um, formerly colonized country needed, which yeah. is enormous amounts of resources. But I wasn't convinced that it was anything to do with the industry that was lacking. Yeah. And certainly wasn't creativity that was lacking. And they all there's a whole incentives argument about copyright, which doesn't make any sense um, most of the time. 
But anyway, so I was like, well, maybe I'll write about that. Maybe I'll just look at the history of Jamaican music and how it did develop, how the industry did develop for my economic history program, because it did that in the absence of copyright enforcement. So it's sort of a natural counterfactual to this model. Um, And so that was way back in, I wrote it in like 2000. And um, and that was really the seed of it. In fact, chapter there's I have a history chapter that is still kind of you know echoing that early master's thesis I did. So don't give up hope that something you wrote ages ago might not <laughs> pop up again. <laughs> but, um, but I do yeah. hope so. Yeah, I can always like reuse some of those papers. Yeah, I think grad it's, school. Yeah, I don't think you should um, that you were required to make explicit quote, productive use of everything you write, but I also think it's never wasted if you wrote it, like it's Great. there somewhere. Uh, so so anyway, yeah, the, the master's thesis was really the heart of it, but then I was not really still sure about academia. My experience at London School of Economics wasn't terrible, but um, I wasn't really sure what it meant to go on to do a PhD, so I actually took more time and then got really involved in music and DJing uh, and uh, was also a street medic for like the massive demos that were happening back in the late 90s and early 2000s and was sort of thinking about activism and power, but ended up thinking that um, there was still something really interesting here about nightlife and culture and the way that these uh, cultural practices do a lot of the work that activism says mm-hmm. it's doing, um, that is sort of building these spaces where people are relating in a different way mm-hmm. to each other than what capitalism or colonialism would say. And mm-hmm. so when I decided to go back to do a PhD, I was interested in how copyright seemed to be a kind of interesting window into that because it's this set of rules about what you can and can't do with culture, but it's a, it's, it sort of sets up the state uh, as this arbiter of cultural practice in a way that suggests that there's some kind of um, assumptions about what it means to be a sort of a good citizen kind of built into this this you know uh, world of expression and creativity which most people aren't, aren't necessarily thinking about formal citizenship but I yeah. think they are thinking about belonging and control yeah. and connection and a lot of the things that states also say they're telling they're doing to us or for us with citizenship so anyway I wasn't th- I wasn't thinking specifically about citizenship at the time, but I was like, there's still all this stuff around copyright and what it's supposed to do and not do. And I think if I went to Jamaica and spent some time there, I might learn more about what people are doing that seems much more complex and interesting than what the law says. And also, if you listen to the lawyers, Jamaicans just sound like failures, which is so bizarre when you see how creative and how popular and influential the music is, like from a legal perspective lawyers are always saying, oh, you know, they're not following the rules, it's mayhem, it's anarchy, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's all these, like, very condescending kind of language around how uncontrollable yeah. and, and unruly people are being and not Who are following. not able to profit from their creations. Yeah, because usually... they're, they're not acting right, yes. <laughs> right? They're not behaving properly and they're not accounting for themselves properly and keeping good records and all this kind of thing. And so I just, part of me was just like, wow, it takes a really strong ideology to look at this like incredibly complex and rich and productive and creative and expressive and influential culture Mm -hmm. and talk about it like that like it's this failure of like mayhem and unruly you know like there's definitely some kind of cultural programming going on in the in the in the law to make to make people think about it that way and i mean i'm I'm caricaturing a little because many people many copyright lawyers who work in jamaica do it because they love jamaican music so it's not like they hate Jamaican music, but it's still interesting that it's kind of impossible to talk 
about the music f- in a way that fully embraces its rich richness mm-hmm. from a legal perspective. <laughs> like the law doesn't have any space for a lot of what people are doing. So that's all part of what ended up being in the book. So um, so was excavating that through spending time there and through also, again, still still DJing also because I think if I'm talking about how people interact with each other through mm-hmm. music, I think it's nice to try to make sure that I can still do it. I don't think what I do is exactly what Jamaican DJs do, but I feel like if my theories are bad, I'm probably also going to fail <laughs> on the dance floor. So it's nice that that's sort of continued to inform a lot of my work. And it's also helped me do the work in very practical ways, too, to have DJ mm-hmm. knowledge um, help me in the field and stuff like that. That's beautiful. From enclosures at the dinner table mm-hmm. all the way to, like, you know, applying it to copyrights to Jamaica, uh, particularly because of your you were DJing. So thank you for that. That was actually, like, very rich uh, genealogy. Um, I have a uh, question. I think in the intro of your book, you write... And if you want to understand the conditions that enable cultural expressions to move communities towards autonomy and liberation, Jamaica popular music provides an illuminating example of a living tradition that often challenges colonial ways of looking at the world. This is a little bit of what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, this living tradition is not invisible to those in power, but is often seen, that, seen by them as rude, which in a way it is. It does not respect or abide by the terms of engagement that the state defines as proper. So I really liked that idea of rude citizenship or rude way of behaving because I think it's pretty known that Jamaicans have been very creative at the way that they interpret the world and they name things. So it's not only how creative their music is, mm-hmm. how like, you know, when you look at how certain um, genres have been developed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like a, almost like a story against all odds and like really making something rich and incredibly creating out of the most unexpected circumstances. And again, when we say unexpected, it's because we're again thinking to that like incredibly privileged position. Um, but I was also thinking about, even as an ethnographer, if you can talk a little bit more about that experience of all of a sudden understanding or like trying to get through that world that seems like from 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 what we like, you know, from more Western perspectives, what we have come to understand as chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be as simply as like, again, something as like language as well. Like you were mentioning, you have a beautiful scene in the opening of your book when you are talking about this uh, competition on TV, when mm-hmm. a producer calls, you know, that beat is not original enough. And the way that he's using original is it's a completely different way that, you know, copyright will think of original, mm-hmm. meaning like, you know, created um, maybe perhaps by the first time uh, by someone who like either trademark and like the producer, I think, is referring to original as something that has been tested by the, the, the community, by mm-hmm. a popular crowd as like these are the beats that are known that have been successful. Mm-hmm. And that is for them what is original uh, even the way I was thinking of like for them DJ and you know like the way that we name DJ for them is like a selector mm-hmm. and a DJ will be more like a master of ceremonies or someone that is just like hyping up the crowd so I mm-hmm. think like there's all of these very idiosyncratic and rich ways in which that they have like completely name things and mm-hmm. try to understand the world so if you can talk a little bit more about like how was that experience of like okay now you arrive you find that Jamaica is really interesting and the mm-hmm. like how was any way to just embed yourself in that type of environment and navigating it 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the point about language is really, is really true. I mean, it's, you know, uh, there is a really dramatic and specific form of kind of verbal artistry that is very common in, in a lot of Jamaica, not only in the music, but mm-hmm. even in a way in everyday life. And that was another thing about living there that was really great uh, from my perspective was you got to see how much kind of how much these kinds of different verbal interactions and wordplay were everywhere were mm-hmm. not only in you know in uh, the music or in people who were calling themselves performers uh, but also that people would use words that are the same words that I knew but would use them in different ways which was very could be very exhausting um, to parse you know if you're trying to figure out what's going on um, and also because I think there were quite a few times when there were sort of gaps between what people said and what they did, mm-hmm. but I felt increasingly that it wasn't appropriate for me to treat that as a kind of like a gotcha moment or mm-hmm. like a, or a people are lying or they're ignorant. Like I also didn't want to treat it as like a here's my chance to educate moment. Yeah. Instead, I was trying to understand, well, what, you know, what does it mean when people say this thing and then they do something very different? So, mm-hmm. for example... Um, Jamaican uh, sound system operators, the people who run the the setup of yeah. the turntable speakers and 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 uh, musical recordings of whatever form they're in now, um, they they recently have been organizing as to demand rights, which is very interesting because they've been trying to syndicate. Yes, okay. there are there is an association of sound system operators, and they are incredibly important. Um, people and and institutions within Jamaican popular music, but they are also pretty embedded in DJ culture in a way that makes it hard to enforce copyright and have them function the way they have wanted to function. And so there's a way in which they just don't talk about that. (laughs) And then also there's a way in which even when the Jamaican government sort of is talking a little bit about investing in culture, which a lot of countries now yeah. and over the past 10 years, especially in, the, in you know, places that are um, coming out from undercolonialism yeah. or developing or whatever you want to call it, there's this idea that one should invest in culture as a competitive advantage type thing. And so there's a push to do that, but they, they don't include the, um, the sound system yeah. people in it because there isn't really a way to include them without also requiring them to pay some fees to, for copyright, which they don't have or they don't want to pay. So I have a colleague, um, uh, Dr. Erin McLeod, who is Canadian, uh, who has written about Jamaica and a bunch of other stuff. She's also a music journalist. And she was in Jamaica. I, I think this is in the end of the book. I think I threw this in because she was telling me about it right when I was revising it. It was such a great story. Um, she basically was at uh, a big summit in the Jamaican government where they were talking about developing the music industry for the 21st century. And they went out and did all this research and interviewed all these people. And they mm-hmm. spent all this time with the Sound System Association. But they, they didn't include And they them. didn't include them yes, in the final report. Yeah, and it's this thing about silences, right? And, like, where, what, how do you interpret them? And, like, it doesn't mean that they're not important. But it means that there isn't any way to appropriately imp- uh, include them without causing other kinds of problems. And so that's I just think that's super fascinating and also to me points to well we should probably like they're more important than the thing that's keeping them out i mean sound systems have been an institution 
you know, since the 1930s, really, 1930s and 40s, and without them there would be no Jamaican popular music. So, again, any system that requires you to exclude them in order to, to function is clearly not operating very sensibly in relation to the community that it's coming from. So watching the way people made claims and then also didn't talk about things was something that I had to, and still do, like try to learn a lot about. And then another way that that, that functioned was with the, with the concept of rude citizenship. One of the reasons that I end up using this phrase is because, I mean, I came in with a fairly probably not very sophisticated, but fairly Mm -hmm. anti-colonial, anti-capitalist mindset in which I was looking at these things, these these practices as sort of anti-everything, you know, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist spaces. But, and and they are in a a way you can call them that, but I wanted to account for the fact that a lot, most of the people I saw in these spaces did not themselves say, we don't want to be Jamaican. Mm-hmm. or we don't want to win Grammys or we don't want, like they wanted, they said they wanted all those things. And I felt like in a way it would be disrespectful for me to be like, well, you say you don't, you say you want to be Jamaican, but really what you're saying is you don't want to be Jamaican because Jamaican is, Jamaica is colonial. Like that would, I feel like that's too much for me yeah. <laughs> and doesn't really respect what's happening. So it was more about how they were claiming citizenship, membership in society, but also not backing down on doing it in their own way. Yeah, and that's what I really um, was trying to encapsulate, and then it was sort of a happy coincidence that rudeness is also a big theme in Jamaican music. Mm-hmm. Like it's a long-running concept, and so it worked very well. Um, so those are those are some they come out of anthropological, but they're more conceptual. I don't know if you want more like everyday no. stories from the field, but those, that was and and, of mine. and when you were talking, it feels that the fact that you know they were saying some things and then they were doing others, it feels a little bit about the same thing that you you know we were talking about earlier of like understanding the world in very different things. So mm-hmm. maybe the way that you know it's that is very similar to the thing of like we're using the same words, but we definitely understand them to be different. Yeah, we're under you know perhaps like for them it's like they want to be Jamaican, but they're never saying like that Jamaican. Yeah, and I think also. Um, Many scholars, even like Deb Thomas, who we were briefly talking at the beginning, like has talked about also the particular like, you know, um, criticism that has been towards like some forms of materialistic culture that is in popular culture in the Caribbean, in dancehall mm-hmm. and all of this. But um, I think uh, her and other people have talked about how there is a certain like never fully given in and there's like a definitely critical thinking but also in trying to partake also Mm -hmm. like why not me why should i just refuse myself of partaking in those Mm -hmm. systems as well um that i think is very interesting in my own research i look at that too i look at underground uh reggaeton um uh cultures but anyway this is not about me um So I actually had a question about translation Mm -hmm. because we were just talking about like how is for you to understand in terms of anthropologically like what is to embed yourself on trying to discern and becoming to understand what what theories they and you know the your interlocutors are enacting and what type of like worlds Mm -hmm. they're like practicing and what type of liberations are able to um, um, almost like imagine and obtain Mm -hmm. whether fleeting or not. even though they're not necessarily doing activism in the way that we think traditionally. But then one thing is to embed oneself and then try to translate that to, um, translate not in, in terms of direct language translation, but then translate that mm-hmm. into like a book form mm-hmm. or like writing. And how 
easy that came uh, to you? Can you talk more about your writing process? Um, what, how do you, what do you thought about, this is for really important for me that I put, um, this is important for me that I um, leave out. I particularly like that you include uh, big chunks of your, uh, of your note-taking mm -hmm. during, the, um, during your ethnographic per, uh, um, data gathering. So if you can talk a little bit more about that and how do you decide to write the book and why the different chapters? Yeah, um, yeah I think a lot of the choices I made were about um, accountability mm -hmm. in a way, like how, you know, especially as someone who is probably closest to ethnography, right? I'm not, uh, I'm not fussed about like generalizability or the kinds of things that other methods demand, but I think there is a question of, well, how, you know, how can I, how do I have standing to say, to make any of the observations that I'm making? And so mm -hmm. as much as possible, I think in each of the chapters, I try to sort of show show my work so that other people can also get a sense of how it is I'm making these these uh, judgments that mm -hmm. I'm making. So when I include these big chunks of my field notes, and it's funny because I had an interesting, I had a critique from a reviewer of the book mm -hmm. uh, about this, you know, where they said, you know, you use some language in a description that's kind of charged, you know, that's kind of judgmental sounding, you know, and, you know, you, we need to be careful when we're writing about people not to frame them in ways that are, you know, judgmental or charged. And I was like, I, I mean, absolutely agree about that. But I was sharing my field notes so that you can see how I am as a mm -hmm. researcher, which means that I make judgments sometimes, you know, like I want you to see if I'm, you know, because maybe you'll see when you read my notes something that I haven't seen or you'll say, oh, this person was really, you know, had a strong reaction to this issue. Maybe that's her particular hang-up or whatever, right? So yeah. for me, I, my response was to say, yes, I'm going to make sure I frame my field notes correctly so you understand that's what you're reading at that point. Like, that's, that is my personal opinion. I'm not yeah. trying to say anything other than that's my experience in the moment of this place. All the other writing is about, you know, how we make sense of that as well. Like, I'm interpreting my own responses as much yeah. as anyone else's, right? So I think... Um, for the that's why in the ethnographic sections there are these long these big chunks of um, of field notes and then uh, in the history section I mean that one is really it's just a very kind of idiosyncratic history where I'm pulling together mostly secondary sources but most of them they're not talking about this copyright issue front mm -hmm. and center and so I'm kind of pulling the threads out yeah. of the things they've said and showing how those have a lot of implications for why it is copyright law was never enforced and couldn't have been yeah. enforced that those authors weren't necessarily writing about but uh, you know they all had much better access and many more years to write history books about Jamaica than I did so I was like why don't I you know let you know David Katz and Lloyd Bradley and yeah. these people like they have plenty to say here you know but I can kind of highlight you know and they did some great interviews and I found some great quotes from them mm -hmm. that I thought were useful f for telling this story about copyright but you know, I I uh, I met most. I've met most of the people of the bigger names in that at this point, and I, I hope they also can say I'm representing them fairly. Do you know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. part of the the dynamic. And then the third section is a more of a classic kind of textual analysis, um, uh, where I'm looking at this sort of musical theme. Uh, and again, I'm just trying to show my work and say, you know, here are the things. I mean, the hardest thing there is just it's a book 
and I'm talking about music and you can't hear it and that's super annoying. It's super annoying. I was like, you know, if I could just play this, we, it would be very short. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't need like 27 pages of description of an audio experience. You could just hear it right away. Um, Although you have a great quote uh, in the book, I think, when you are trying to address the music and you said um, that learning about music is not only listen to the tunes, but also like how is it, understanding how is it made. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you honor that. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to talk about all the parts I can talk about. And so I look at, you know, the historical context for these different songs. And again, how all of them are made in a way that just make it impossible for copyright law to be a, a like a, a thing that would occur to people. It's not like people are choosing to go against it. It's sort of in the in the context of creating a, a song. Mm -hmm. There's never a moment at which you're like, oh, and who owns this section and who owns that? That's just not how that works. You know, if you have a, you know, and that is, and I root that in also other like ethnomusicologists who write about, you know, improvisation and oral tradition and, mm -hmm. and how those are connected. So I think the, um, It's interesting because I've been interested in this now for, for so long, you know, really. Um, and I've pursued it through these different fields. So I was in economic history and I was in law or legal, legal anthropology and now I'm in communication. And so, yeah, a lot of the work has been translating from field to field in a way as well, you know. And I think that's where ethnography does, does me really well because I try to stay, I try to stay grounded in the data Mm -hmm. as much as possible and then I don't have to you know that that keeps me from wandering off into sort of sort of uh semantics of what how different fields talk about the same thing um because that's also that's something that I've learned from being an inter interdisciplinary scholar is like it's not just that different fields talk about things in different ways but some fields or some fields are really not that great at talking about this stuff yet and others are And so part of me is trying to figure out where is the place where I can talk most plainly and clearly about these things that I think really matter and kind of hook it into the fields so that people from different fields can understand it, you know. So that's why I think on the whole the book isn't super jargony. There's still jargon in there, of course, and like technical language. But I tried to keep a lot of the um, more specialist, even scholarly language to a minimum because I want it to speak across all these different fields and be meaningful. And so, again, also, that's why I keep directing people back to the data, because I'm like, whether you're a legal scholar or a historian or an anthropologist, you can all look at the, the field notes. You can yeah. all look at the songs. And I'll explain to you what I think is going on, but you can also look at them and maybe, you know, hopefully that will, at the very least, back me up. Yeah. Maybe we'll also spark something new, you know. So so I think the um, yeah, uh, I'm... I like the way you asked the question about translation because, of course, it isn't, it's not me translating Jamaicans for the world. Yeah. That's definitely not what I want to be doing, but it's more me translating the encounters that I had in this space and trying to share sort of where I think that could illuminate things happening both in Jamaica and outside. So that's, that's you know, that means translating my own observations in a way uh, as much as anything else. And so that, that yeah. was a lot of the labor of, of, of the writing. Um, And also what was so interesting about, like, going through the review process is seeing, yeah. you know, it was often, most of the time I felt like it was a translation issue. <laughs> like, I, I was lucky not to get a lot of feedback that said, like, this isn't interesting. <laughs> But there was a lot of, like, well, why did you do it this way? Or why didn't you do this other thing? And 
sometimes I was like, well, I did, but you didn't see it. And other times I was like, because that's not the field I'm in. And, you know, so that was interesting for me as well. Yeah, I definitely also like enjoyed so much the when you were interpreting almost like your own field notes or when you were making an argument and say, like, you can look at, you know, this when I took the notes. And because there were enough time, I think, between them, um, there was an interesting conversation that I felt that it was happening between you and you, mm-hmm. um, that it was very enriching. Um, so I, I, I wanted to ask about that because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed those those parts. Uh, but your research also are, are large. What what type of frameworks um, you take and then into the classroom? Because you're also now in COM, right? Yes, yes. So. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, one is just, you know, I'm always interested in how people who are oppressed are sort of carving out spaces for themselves uh, and what are the tools that allow them to do that? What are the things that make that more or less likely to happen? And so whenever, in whatever class I'm teaching, I tend to try to have places where students can explore that kind of question, like how people in the world are making use of this thing or doing this thing and what does it allow them to do or what does it not allow them to do. Uh, also to avoid a lot of questions like, you know, I mean, like I teach media criticism. So like, you know, is this genre bad or whatever, right? Like, you yes. don't want those conversations. So instead, you know, but I also feel like I don't really want to just say, or it's good. Like, mm-hmm. I want to say, what are people doing with it? What does it mean to to be a part of this? Who is in it? Who is outside of it? What does the industry look like? You know, so I'm tr- always trying to get into these kind of more material questions about culture, I think. Um And then also, I mean, I do teach, like, if at the graduate level, like, research methods mm-hmm. and um, classes where I'm also very concerned about the, the ethics of and, and practice of, of uh, knowledge making. I, yeah. I mean, I do actually try to do that at all levels, but it's more explicit at the graduate level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is informed a lot by... You know, in a way, I think I'm glad I had so long to work on this book because I think, you know, the ethics and politics of being a white middle class scholar studying Jamaica are, I mean, it's not like I solved it, you know, <laughs> like, but they're yeah. ongoing problems and ongoing issues. And trying to do the best I possibly could or the best I thought I could, on, you know, under the, these sort of broader institutional and social circumstances required a lot of reflection, required a lot of self-examination and dialogue and dialogue with others when they were kind enough to do it. And so I try to also model that with students, you know, of let's all work through, you know, yeah. not let, not like let's pick apart where everybody did it wrong, you know, but let's all work through how can we do it better next time or, you know, what worked or what didn't work and that kind of thing. And I think that practice... Um, You know, in a way, those are, I think, also, for me, those were, like, ethnography survival skills, right? Because yeah. like, when you're stuck, if you do traditional, I did much more, like, traditional classic anthropology ethnography of, like, I went out and I lived somewhere for almost a year. Um, I guess that's short for anthropology, but, you know, for for con, that's kind of long, I think. <laughs> so, so, you know, and... You're, you know, the one of the things that happens, it's like a classic anthropology arc, right, is there's, like, the emotional crash that happens, like, month two or three when 
you're coming from the field and you separate yourself from the person that you became. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you and you're like, I don't know anything and I can't understand anything and these people don't want to talk to me or I can't figure out how to talk to people, right? Or I'm you know, whatever it is. And you're just left there in your own resources and that's very, very important to be humbled in the in that space. But I think in order to figure out how to go on, you have to come up with some reason to keep going. And for me, it's the sort of, okay, well, okay, how can I do it a little better? Like, how can we, how can we, you know, figure out what worked and what didn't work, figure out who, and part of that involves figuring out who I want to be accountable to, you know, am mm -hmm. I, who am I trying to, I mean, please, or, you know, who am I trying to speak to, who do I want to hear me? And, you know, having it be my committee was necessary when I was doing the dissertation, but after that I actually had a very big choice of like who I want this book to be for, or who I want to mm -hmm. be hearing it, and who, you know, and how do I want it to be received by the communities that I worked with to the extent that they're interested in reading a giant book, which they may not be. But, you know, I think part of that was, um, I take that into the classroom too of, in all my classes I try to get students to think about that too, like not just, um, how do I, you know, produce a result or produce a piece of work? But who, who am I producing it for? Like, who, who do I want this to be for? Who do I, who am I accountable to in this moment? And I, you know, I, I'm doing fewer and fewer. It, it's changed my teaching style and my uh, assessment style, the way I grade, all of mm -hmm. that, because I'm not really interested in setting up like benchmarks for the sake of benchmarks. Like, I don't think they're very helpful at any level. So. Um, if, I, if I'm forcing someone to go through the stress of like producing a thing, I want it to have meaning for them and, and then they have to figure out what's meaningful. So it's a kind of another level of conversation. Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's also helpful because I'm teaching uh, especially um, a lot of first generation college students. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of them, I think even more so, and this I can't generalize everywhere, but I did teach also at some very um, expensive private schools in different places. I will say that a lot of first-generation students, both undergrad and grad, they require that the work be meaningful <laughs> because otherwise why on earth would you be doing yeah, usually. this? Like, what, you know, to leave your, your community and your space that you're from and go, it has to mean something. Yeah. So that conversation is actually, I think, closer to them. I actually found it harder in some ways with students for whom it wasn't such a giant leap to go to college or to go to grad school because they were like, well, it's a thing to do. It's yeah. a thing one does. It's a thing people I know do. <laughs> you know, So I still think it should be meaningful, but sometimes it's harder to get to that conversation. So yeah. for me, it's been great to have... Um, or just in general, I think that the, the, the ability of... Um, go to, to school or go to college, not only because it's what everyone's doing in your environment, but it's relatively easy and you're not um, working and then mm -hmm. like making it to class. Um, I, 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 my, um, when I moved uh, from Cuba to here, basically I started in community college. Like mm -hmm. I better like my classes because I was like working from five to nine and then taking classes at night. So exactly. you're so tired that you better grab your attention. Like exactly. you have to make sure that... And yes, I also wanted to have a degree because I knew that that would better my options for, you know, certain kind of jobs that I was aspiring to do. But it was definitely, um, it, it was way easier. And I definitely signed up for the classes that grab my attention when you are necessarily um, have other constraints. Mm -hmm. So uh, I sympathize um, a lot with that, like basically make the, their time well worth it, not only mm -hmm. because they're getting this accreditation and going through the hoops and the benchmarks, but mm -hmm. also 
that you're getting something meaningful out of it. Um, Dr. Man, I have one last question because one of my favorite um, um, frameworks that you use in the book is actually Obika's great concept of hexalytic spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and you basically use it to localize street dances as tangible spaces of sovereignty precisely because of its exilic condition. In page 94, you write, the presence of a guli marks the physical location of a site beyond the control of elites, a site where people not bound by elite norms or behavior are in charge. In this way, it marks not a public space or a private space, but a local space, especially a space controlled by the urban poor. So I was thinking when I was reading that, whether at least in the Caribbean, I'm also Cuban, uh, so I understood particularly well what you meant uh, there, even though I'm not from Jamaica. Um, I wonder if can sovereignty against the coloniality of being that we understand so common as the Caribbean experience can only exist in exile to be truly itself? I mean, you know, I'm really grateful to like, it's, I think actually, uh, Dr. McLeod, who I mentioned earlier, is the person who introduced me to Abika Gray's work. And I read it and was immediately, like, that whole concept. I was like, this is it's the thing. Me. Yes, in a way, I think so. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be the final arbiter. But I think, it to me, it echoes, um, perhaps it's pessimism <laughs> in a way, right? But uh, it, it doesn't mean that those spaces, those exilic spaces, it's not that they don't, they, they exist as part, they're still part of the broader system. You know, the system relies on them and they, 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 can, they can make demands of the system. But I think the thing, the thing that gives them their power is that the people who are most oppressed have authority. And I, I don't see any way for that to happen within a colonial system in a way that is liberatory. Like, obviously, people are chosen to head things or run things or be represented all the time uh, as individuals or as representatives of an oppressed group, but they aren't usually given structural power, uh, and their communities are not given structural power. And so I think, I don't know if I can say what, I, you know, this is kind of where my I like theory generating, but I'm not a grand theory person. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of saying what is like ultimately totally possible or not. But I will say that I always, you know, I look at the characteristics of exilic spaces that make it possible for oppressed people to have sovereignty, and I don't see those in other spaces. And I don't know. I feel like the the lesson for me is really to look to those spaces in those communities to try to figure out where like where else we can go or society yeah. can go uh because i think the you know i remember i was giving an earlier version of a talk that about about parts of my book in uh where was it it was at, it was at some big institution i don't think it was a university but i think it was a conference in a, like a government building and like we had some music and we had brought in all these artists and everybody was talking and somebody was like, well, can this be an exilic space? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, yeah. it's a really it's nice a time. But like, you know, when someone else in government decides they don't like this sort of thing, it's not going to happen. Like, it's not like we're, you know, this, there's no structural shift has happened. That doesn't mean that it's also not like I've had some new ideas and maybe something will grow from it. It's not to say it's like infertile or whatever, but 
I just feel like there's a desire for people who have structural power to want to like be like we can make these things and then things will be better and I feel like that's what I'm wary of so I I tend to feel that uh you know, and actually, it's 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 also a struggle. It's it's a kind of an echo of a conversation I have around uh, work I'm doing now, which is on safety in nightlife, and which is a very similar kind of debate. Which is that the spaces that are the most popular and desired, and in some ways safe for like marginalized people in nightlife, are usually very unsafe in other ways. Like, mm-hmm. for example, fire safety, uh, right? Like, so, like warehouse parties, outdoor events places where especially like queer and trans people of color go to like celebrate their life and relations in in dance and music right those are not welcome in legal venues and mm-hmm. so that you go to a place that is physically unsafe is there a way to have a perfectly safe space that is funded <laughs> right yeah. and welcomes in people who are the most excluded and oppressed i would like to think so but i i feel like it's very hard to see how that's not that doesn't end up being another compromise with like visibility and control by the state. And it's not for me to say one way or the other what people yeah. are going to do. Like I'm not judging at all. But I think it's funny because it's kind of the same discussion of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, because part of exile is unpleasant. Like I don't want to romanticize. Yeah. You know, the gully is not a pleasant experience to encounter. Nobody likes people in, in who live near them. Don't like them. You know, they smell bad and they're you know unsanitary and people they're full of garbage and stuff. But it still is the place. I mean, actually, this happens in West Philly, too. There's, like, you know, there's, like, a West Philly Facebook group. And there's people who will be like, yeah, we heard gunshots again, but at least it's keeping the rents low and the gentrifiers out. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone is happy about gunshots, but mm-hmm. nobody has figured out the, the other any other way. <laughs> not, not that that's why yeah. they're being done, but you know what I mean? No one's no. figured out a way to create this space where people who are, you know more oppressed, more marginalized, more exploited can have a kind of sovereignty without it involving some kind of danger or exile for yeah. all concerned, right? And so, yeah. But I, and definitely there is a downside and there is like, you know, uh, a risk of over-romanticizing exile. But I think also the, the, the upside perhaps is that um, by enacting sovereignty or being able to enact sovereignty, being removed, you know, um, um, enough, being far away enough, mm-hmm. whether because you were forced to go, you know, mm-hmm. at that point. Um, it's also a remaking, like able to claim sovereignty in those spaces is also a remaking of the idea of exile as a condemnation. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not saying that it doesn't have an, you know, a downside, but it was, but it's definitely, I think, even like how we originally think of the term exile as like someone that gets pushed out, pushed out from their country, and mm-hmm. like you know they become stateless, as if that is a condition for the stop of being. Right. And the fact that you are able to create a form of being that is sustainable to you, albeit can be precarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a positive upside oh, to yeah. that because it's just like pushing back a li- at least a little bit or however possible to say like, you know, I, I'm still here. I'm mm-hmm. still, you know, I, I can still understand myself as Jamaican. I can still con- construct Jamaican culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a person that can go and have a good time with friends and have my relations however I uh, uh, so choose. So, mm-hmm. um it's you know the same thing like if at least i can stay in my neighborhood for longer if the mm-hmm. property taxes don't go up through the roof mm-hmm. um i think there is uh something to to be cherished like yeah. some 
Yeah, and similarly, I wouldn't want to romanticize, right, the spaces that are considered safe are places of structural, intense structural violence, right? Yeah. And this is something also Deb Thomas talks about, I yeah. think. Right, so just because it's not visible in the moment to mm-hmm. people in charge doesn't mean there's not ongoing structural violence happening in spaces that are... Being safe or proper. Safe, right, so yeah, I think absolutely right. And I mean, this idea of, you know, statelessness, certainly for people who think that, the, that states are fundamentally oppressive, then statelessness is not necessarily bad. And mm-hmm. even, you know, I mean, there's even a long tradition, for example, of, um, you know, radical Jewish thought around, mm-hmm. you know, the, the productive and resistant possibilities of an identity that's not rooted in a nation state for yeah. those that are not rooted, who don't want to be rooted in yeah. an existing nation state that's trying to claim Judaism, right? Yeah. But I think... You know, you have like, and there is a resurgence of that, which is really interesting as well. So I think, yeah, I think that's part of what I'm interested in is, yeah, all these ways that people are claiming and asserting sovereignty, but rejecting some of these terms uh, that states say has to come with sovereignty, right? Like re- rejecting some of the, th- the relations, you know, the same way, like when you have, you know, when you have your like endless argument with like, um, somebody who's very authoritarian and they're like well human beings need structure or need hierarchy and you're like well no actually that's you know that's not true so i'm gonna say we can have a society and not have hierarchy right <laughs> or something like that that's i think um part of what's happening in these spaces that there there's a rejection of some fundamental kind of ideological um attachments to what it means to be Jamaican or to be a citizen and I do think it's yeah that's kind of great and should be learned from and cherished so definitely um so if you want to just talk a little bit more about how you envisioned like particular sound systems and um uh, street dances how are they evolving I know particular at least from my experience on my own research that something that was already happening but got accelerated at least with the pandemic and I study um, not necessarily mainstream movements. Um, it's that there has been this growth for um, data dependency, the dependency of social media data and stream uh, uh, streaming. Mm-hmm. As like, if you don't get a presence, you don't get like booked for certain parties and mm-hmm. things of that sort. Um, so it has gotten um, very important, even if you're not trying to get sign up with Sony Music right. or something like that. It's just like even for um, smaller like you know, organization events or whether like a local influencer is going to interview you a lot of depends of like how much you are in the social media realm or how much followers you have. So if you can, but this seems like a very individualized approach versus like, you know, what you talk about, how artists are made or how some music is made that is at least in street dances, it's like a more collective effort, right? Mm -hmm. Like DJs had like way more influence over, you know, like, um, how to help uh, get get some like music's known. I mean, I'm obviously ge- over generalizing here, mm-hmm. but I was thinking a lot when you were describing certain moments at street part dances in which the DJ reads the crowd and knows how to even adapt the songs to it. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that the musician, when they uh, made the recording, necessarily right. intended. Mm-hmm. But that's something that the DJ at this point is also doing mm-hmm. um, uh, with their music along based on the crowd. So th- it felt very um, that there was something intrinsic, intrinsically very communal about mm-hmm. how um, um, 
you know, music was made and passed and, uh, and, and was viewed as successful versus right. like how it seems that the industry is going now. So if you can talk about how sound systems in your view, I know you're no longer there in the field um, and street dances, how do you think they are just like going? Do you think that they're gonna endure? Um, are they adapting and changing because of like this new turn? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't been there recently enough mm -hmm. to say what it's like there now. I will say, First, that one thing that's interesting is, in a way, a lot of how Jamaicans in the music scene, in my experience, functioned uh, was very similar to this social media world now, but it wasn't social media. But the idea that you had to be in circulation, yeah. you had to be out, you had to be about, you had to be known, and that any mention was good mention. I mean, that's, you know, when you don't have copyright enforcement, instead you have circulation you know, and you get your name or your catchphrase or your particular vocal sound, you know, mm -hmm. signature circulating, you know, in a way that kind of prefigures what we now have. And I think for me, I'm not sure if there's a difference in scale or if it's more or less communal, but it's more that the communities in which the, the culture is circulating that you need to then get your sort of circulatory power from, it is more diffuse and it's just, you know, in general, more white supremacist. It's not grounded in mm -hmm. poor Jamaican social scenes. It's global or mm -hmm. algorithmically derived, which yeah. is a whole other issue. And I do, I have done a little bit of work on that, on alg algorithms and culture. Although I think Nick Seaver just came out with a book like today or like this week about music and algorithms and culture, okay. which I haven't read, but but I'm very no, curious I'm gonna look to. Right up. Yeah. But I was part of some discussions about, about this as well, about the ways that now you know, circulation, uh, you know, what pops up on your stream mm -hmm. or whatever is is often algorithmically developed. And algorithms, of course, are not neutral either. Mm. And they have cultural assumptions built into them that are the cultural assumptions of the people who built the algorithms or the cultural assumptions of the data set that it was trained on and all that kind of thing. So I think I'm curious to know, I mean, I think it seems to me like there's there's likely to have been a loss of some of that local authority because of the way it's so much easier to turn your turn yourself towards a global or to an internet yeah. audience. At the same time, people are often very good at like re sort of capturing, turning things back around into local practices. So I would be curious to see how people are are negotiating that. Um, I do think there has also been a resurgence of interest uh, in Jamaican popular music by the Jamaican government and globally, you know, you have the rise of new artists like Coffee and mm -hmm. who are amazing. Yeah. Um, but there is an, an interesting way in which that seems quite new to me. There's a lot more middle-class Jamaicans involved now mm -hmm. and they are using the language of resistance and rebellion and revolution, uh, which is fine. I mean, I, that's a nice language to use, but it's interesting because it doesn't quite mean the same thing when it's coming from people who are well off, yeah. I think, that it would when it's coming from people who are really uh, uh, poor. This is just my personal yeah. um, take on it. And so well, I'm curious because in the past, I would say middle and upper class Jamaicans would not have felt comfortable using that language or associating themselves with that kind of militancy very often. And it mm -hmm. seems like it's become safer for them to do that. And um, that kind of militancy also. But militancy in pose. In not, pose. They're not militant in action as far as yeah. I can tell. <laughs>
also wasn't necessarily overlap with um, more commercial, which mm -hmm. like I'm thinking someone like Coffee, whom I adore, like has a song like Ragamuffin mm -hmm. that is very like engaged in like, you know, politics of mm -hmm. like poor working class Jamaicans mm -hmm. and he's denouncing like violence and yeah. like, you know, unemployed youth and all of that. But then it has like more like commercial or like, you know, mm -hmm. something like West Indies, for example. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And as I can't say like with one artist. I'm, no, you know, yeah. One artist isn't matter, but it's more. I did see that trend the last time I was there where there were I saw a lot more like it's something that's familiar to me from the U.S. because obviously like middle class and upper class people in the U.S. are quite comfortable kind of becoming bohemian and mm -hmm. like and it's partly to do with like you can't lose respectability as a white person so easily so you can kind of wear holes in your clothes and yeah. hang out in scruffy areas and you're safe jamaica wasn't like that when i was there so much people were there was much more social distance between um in the music scene too between and i write about it a bit like these upper class or middle class artists who come into the music scene and actually people are sort of hostile to them or you know and they don't have such an easy time that's changing and i'm i'm not sure what that means exactly but it doesn't it's not automatically changing uh how poor people have access to resources yeah. so in a way it seems like something else is happening but um but i don't really know about the sound systems because the sound system organization thing is new the association is new and it's very mm -hmm. interesting i and i think they're making they're angling for some like cultural heritage recognition which makes sense yeah um but again what does what do those things mean when yeah. you become visible in that way and then you have to be accountable in that way and you have to get on a registry and you have to you know uh show your yeah. show your re you know your funding and all of that kind of stuff there's going to be a negotiation there in some things yeah. Yeah. and all, and you know what i saw cuz i actually i did um also uh, more recently a bit of field work in barranquilla colombia mm -hmm. and it was really dramatic there it was right before the pandemic where the the local government was was trying to turn um la cultura picotera the mm -hmm. sound system culture there mm -hmm into a cultural draw yeah. for, you know for tourism for tourism yeah. and the thing was they were picking and choosing who could be a part of that and the people who could be a part of it were the ones who were the most able to negotiate the bureaucracy and go to the meetings and they were basically there there's become a wave of kind of middle class intermediaries of this culture who were not the people who originally you know created it mm -hmm. um, and even among the people who originally created it it seems to me that the Afro-Colombian people are not included at all, and some of the mestizo, poor Colombian people are included, but the Afro-Colombians don't seem to almost ever be included in these government initiatives at all. So there's like layers and layers of how you become visible and marketable and appropriate, and I'm just, I don't know if that's gonna um, take on a different form in Jamaica, because in a way Jamaicans have, are, have skipped the middleman of the Jamaican government entirely and gone to the global market from the beginning, so. Uh, it might be more complicated than that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you. And and thank you for, like, talking about your book, uh, your research, even, like, how do you translate it to the classroom, like, your writing uh, process and experience. It was really a privilege to hear from it, uh, from the first person. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, and, um, yeah, thank you again for coming today. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email, cargc at asc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.